call me strange, but I can get pretty excited, pretty fired up about issues of economics and finance. Well, some people, some people have got no interest at all, no interest in the jargon and in all those numbers. But personally, I think economics tells a story about human nature and about the world we're creating for ourselves in the future. And on today's episode, I'm really hoping to sway the finance skeptics and show that it can not only be interesting, but also have a really big and really positive impact. To do that, I'll be speaking with Pablo Baruti. He's head of responsible investment at Colonial First State Asset Management, and he's a passionate advocate for the power of financial markets to change the world. It's a big call, but have a listen. There's lots of optimism, and in practical terms, there's a really great explanation of ESG investing, which is all about considering environmental, social, and governance factors when making your investment decisions. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big question about the future of sustainable business. Pablo was generous with his time and his passion for these issues comes through really clearly. Had a great time chatting with him and was glad to help him get the word out about another venture he's working on. It's called Altiorum and it's a cross between a library, a little bit of a database and a search engine for all things related to sustainable investing. But I'll let him explain it. I'm keen to dive into this one. If you get something out of the convo, please do leave us a review on iTunes because it really helps push us up the rankings and that means more people will find it. And you can also find all the links and details from today's show on the website at johntreadgold.com slash goodfuturepodcast. All right, enough out of me. Here's my chat with Pablo Baruti. Here we go. Rudy, thank you very much for coming to Hub Australia in Sydney. Great to have you. And your name's been mentioned by more than a few of my past guests. Um, they said you were the guy to tell us all about how sustainable finance is evolving. You're sort of right at the coalface. But before I jump into all of that, I'm really keen. There was something that, that grabbed my attention recently, and that was your involvement with the Climate Reality Leader Training in Brisbane. Al Gore was there. What's that all about? He was there. It was very exciting. So he spent a lot of time with us over the course of three days and 700 other people who were training to fundamentally give his presentation to a wider audience. He's trained more than 19,000 people around the world to do exactly that, but also to demonstrate other acts of leadership. So writing blogs, um, talking to people, really trying to change attitudes and create action around fixing the climate crisis. And so that was a really inspiring event for me because my interest in this issue goes back further. The thing that really turned me on to how do I be able to work in sustainability, work on issues that I'm passionate about like climate change, uh, was really triggered by inconvenient truth. And so for me, it was, it, was, uh, it was just brilliant to, at this stage, what, 13 years later, to have the opportunity to spend a bit of time, even though at a distance, from him. Yeah, and, and he's obviously a really good communicator. Did you really engage with his messages? Did you think he was really kind of spot on with the way that he explained these things? It's been quite interesting to see because I've had the privilege of being able to see him quite a number of times and, and he spoke about it a little bit that I think because the science is quite stark in terms of the challenges that we face and the, the path that we have to travel if we're going to meet the Paris agreements is getting narrower and narrower by the day. I think those aspects of his presentation are, are, are much... I guess more intense and real now, whereas if you remember back to Inconvenient Truth, it was all about the things that are going to happen in the future, and a lot of those things that he talked about are actually ha happening today, and there's, there's more in the pipeline, even if we are able to stop emissions tomorrow, and so that came through very strongly, and it was very powerful, uh, not just hearing from him, but hearing from Indigenous leaders the, in the Torres Strait in particular, like that was really heart-wrenching to hear their tales of, of the sea literally rising up around them. Uh, having to dig up the bones of their ancestors that are that are going to be submerged and take them further uphill. I mean, it's it's really just confronting stories of the issues that they're that they're facing, um, and those issues are true for many people all around the world that are dealing with the impacts of climate change today. And and obviously those those impacts will get worse. And 
if we don't deal with the emission problems that we have, they could get much worse. So, so that was confronting. But he also showed us all the and things that I'm familiar with in my day-to-day work that there is a better future out there. That all of the solutions that we need to solve the climate crisis are here today. It doesn't require some massive technological shift. It doesn't require something new that hasn't been invented yet. It's, it's all here and it just needs the political will and the public demand for, for those solutions to be put into place. Yeah, and there's business opportunities there as well. It's not all sort of needing Massive to Massive business opportunities, yeah. So one of the people that we heard from, uh, who I've, uh, I'll forget his name, I've forgotten his name now, but he runs one of the largest solar companies in the world and he's creating new age panels which you can cut to any shape, it's flexible. He said you could wear it, you could put it on a surface like a skin over 20% efficiency so uh, and cheap. And so this is, this is the way of the future where you could apply solar technology to generate electricity uh, anywhere. Yeah, okay. And then I imagine there was a big, you know, diverse kind of audience there. Was there a specific focus that you could deal with in terms of, you know, you're in the funds management business? Was there a focus on investing? Did you take anything away specifically there? Uh, just th- how relevant the work that we do is to the, the wider community because most people in Australia who work have a superannuation fund and the company that I work for now manages money for, for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of superannuants on behalf of superannuation funds that we work for. And so these impacts are real for them. The issues that they care about are real for them, but then they also cut across various sectors. And so with, with our industry, we tend to spend a lot of time talking to each other and to break out of that silo a little bit and speak to people in sports, in media, in fashion, in uh, doing regenerative farming, in the built environment. The amazing stories that you hear from all of those people really inspired me to keep carrying on. And that actually, we, we, while we don't necessarily communicate all of the time, the fact is we're all out there and we're all on that same, same mission to try and uh, change the way that we do things for the better. Yeah, and I mean, we talk a lot sometimes about some complex sort of financial uh, and economic issues on this podcast. And I think people who are trying to engage with that and trying to understand, you know, they might not have a lot of money to invest, but I think the conduit through which they feel they can engage is through their super. And people are starting to wake up and start to think, hang on, that's my money and I can have a bit of an impact there. What do you see as being the key shifts there? You know, you obviously head of responsible investment that's sort of your team that's your field ESG investing is a big part of that yeah can you tell us a bit about about how that sort of interacts and and your day-to-day sure so uh, in our organization so we're for colonial first state global asset management we have a a bunch of different investment teams and they're all reasonably independent uh, 17 of them in total but each one of them regardless of whether they're investing in companies on share markets or whether they're investing in unlisted infrastructure assets so Brisbane Airport, Adelaide Airport, uh, wind farms, other things that that we invest in around the world, in bond markets, they all believe uh, that the environmental, social and governance performance of the companies that they invest in will influence how well they do. And if they manage those issues well, if they're good corporate citizens, they treat their employees well, have good governance, they're good environmental stewards, that they'll perform better over the long run. And that time factor is a really important one because I think some people perhaps perceive investors as trading day by day, hour by hour, that's not really investing. In our view, we're really trying to deliver long-term outcomes for our clients. And these issues then become very relevant, particularly the longer out you look. Now, that has a very financial focus in terms of the way that they're thinking about these issues, because if, they, if they're not managed well, then companies um, will blow themselves up. And we've, we've seen many examples of that over the years. But also, as you mentioned, John, the, the opportunities now as you see this broad-based societal shift towards more sustainable production processes, dealing with climate impacts, uh, work towards delivering on the sustainable development goals, there are business opportunities that come out of that. And so it's also the, up, the upside is there for investors as well. One of the really important parts, which I think is perhaps not always recognised, is that Uh, Shareholders also have, particularly on that side, but also on the fixed income side, have an opportunity and ability to talk to companies at very high and senior levels of management to boards and try to influence them. And companies are are responsive to their shareholders um, as they they should be to all of their stakeholders. And so adding that shareholder voice or that bondholder voice to the discussion around sustainability and the benefits of of being a more sustainable company helps the broader agenda uh, as well. And so influencing companies to change is a really critical aspect of of what we do. Because as as a number of my teams like to say, there is no such thing as a perfect company. 
So our duty as a, as a steward and a, as an owner of that company through shares is to, is to try and influence them to do better. Yeah, a couple of really important sort of issues you brought up there. You mentioned, well, I mentioned the ESG and then you sort of broke that down to meaning environment, social and governance factors um, as being an sort of a lens, I guess, to look through when you make an investment, which is, I think, a really important distinction from something like responsible investment or ethical investment, which is, I guess, a, a subjective, a personal opinion to, to some extent. So that's the first thing I'd love for you to break down a little bit. But then also this idea of um, engaging with companies and how ESG and engagement kind of work. I kind of, I don't necessarily think that it, it needs to be subjective. So when I think about different strategies that people apply are, are around ethical, sustainable investment. And unfortunately, we have too many labels. And I think, unfortunately, it it's actually confuses people who are just trying to find good quality financial products that meet their needs. And, and I think we need to get better at explaining what they do. But essentially, ethical funds really came up in the sort of 80s and 90s and were about reducing harm. And so the harms associated with, say, tobacco or gaming certain other environmental harms that can happen from certain business activities. And so that focus on harm minimisation meant that you, you wouldn't invest in different types of companies in, in those industries. And then uh, as time went on, other approaches which were really focused on, well, okay, if being a sustainable company is a good thing for, for the environment and society, but also for the business itself and from a financial perspective, then let's have strategies which invest in the best of those companies, so the most sustainable companies in each sector and they'd be less worried about excluding things and much more focused on trying to invest in the best of those. And then as time went on, other strategies have evolved which uh, really try and target those opportunities that I mentioned before. They may be in, in new technologies or they may be in other sectors, uh, whether it's in clean energy or, or other clean technologies that are in healthcare. And now you're actually seeing funds which are focused, say, on, on gender issues and gender diversity. So fun, uh, there's a fund in the US which only invests in companies that have really good performance around gender equality in the boardroom, in management, the pay gap is low, those types of issues are being effectively dealt with. And so as the industry has matured and evolved, um, those other forms of um, responsible investment, the traditional ethical fund, they haven't gone away and they're as, as relevant for many people today as what they were then. But this uh, diversity of other approaches have formed at the same time, though, the mainstream traditional financial products, so your standard global equities product or your, your standard Australian shares product, increasingly it was accepted that actually th these issues are also important financial considerations as well, that not all of the value that a company can produce or destroy is going to be reflected in the, in the P&L and the balance sheet of that company. Um, and so we, sh we should, as investors, just from a financial perspective, be thinking about these things. And that's when it was about 20 institutional investors got together to create the Principles for Responsible Investment um, back in 2006. Uh, and over time, there's been a real groundswell amongst the, the, the mainstream investment community to increasingly and more in more sophisticated ways take those issues into account. So sometimes I think about it where those other strategies and approaches are very much, are often product focused. And so there is a particular fund and it's called the sustainable fund or the ethical fund. Whereas the ESG integration and engagement and those types of strategies, which uh, I hate using the term, but I'll use it again for the fourth time or something, the mainstream are using is actually about process and it cuts across everything. It's not about a particular product or trying to achieve a particular aim. It's just the way that we do things day to day and the way that we think about investing and what we believe is important in our investment practice each and every day. And the two things actually should go together because you would hope that someone who has created a, a, an ethical fund and it's excluded a bunch of, st of sectors which are harmful to society that they're also thinking about the financial implications of climate change or waste or, um, or diversity uh, and those types of issues as well. That's it, yeah. Thanks for that explanation, that's great. To me, what I take away is that ESG can be an overlay, it can be a filter, and you can look at you know any stocks really, and you can judge anything, and it's just a, a way to measure risk, which is you know really core to any investment. So it's important, but I think when I did get a really clear understanding of it, the thing I was struck by was, and we'll use that term again, when, how can mainstream investors not be considering these factors? That's, I think, the, a great question. the, the biggest <laughs> issue, right? How can you not factor climate change? How can you not consider the diversity on a board? It's a fantastic question. And I think over time, so the finance sector moving 
say as a separate stream has become more and more quantitative over time and, I th and the different strategies, the modern portfolio theory and the efficient frontier and all of these great sounding financial uh, rules and theorems that were put in place and, and they have their relevance in their place, there's no question that and they're applied by many. But I think actually over time the connection between what those financial instruments are doing, so shares in a company, in the real world was lost. So they were increasingly seen as tradable items and tradable cash flows and the, the fact that those cash flows might be generated in ways which are really positive to society or really negative for society became more and more of a, of a distant idea and that's very much come back now. Um, one, because the evidence around the impacts that these issues have on financial performance is clearer and clearer over time. But also I think post and uh, GFC was a, a critical inflection point and the PRI, or Principles for Responsible Investment I should say, was established around that uh, just before that time, a couple of years before. I think there was a broader understanding that actually financial markets, financial institutions actually do play an important role, have an important impact in the world, whether that's positive or negative and whether it's intentional or not intentional. And because, particularly from the investment side, where looking after other people's money, we should be thinking about those things and being good stewards. And so the concept of stewardship has become quite a big one globally over the last uh, decade as well, uh, where we do actually need to look after those assets, be good stewards, ensure that those companies are doing the right thing that we're investing in, and that will deliver for our clients over the long run as well. Yeah, stewardship, you know, that's vital, obviously. Long-term investors, um, you know, you need to consider environmental issues as much as profit maximisation. Then from an yeah, profit maximisation is actually a really terrible idea, I have to say. Like, yeah, so, and, it's, right. it's, uh, and there's a great paper actually that GMO wrote on it because I, th I think it gives the impression that it's over a very short period of time. And I think if you're a really responsible long-term investor, what you're trying to do is achieve sustainable returns over that period because driving profit, so um, the classic example is, is BP and the Deepwater Horizon is that they'd been going through rounds and rounds of cost-cutting to try and maximise profits ahead of that. And they had Texas refinery incident, um, they had another spill uh, in Canada, and then they had the most enormous one being the Gulf of Mexico. So had they actually thought longer term around, well, how do we manage those risks and ensure that we, that we don't put ourselves in a situation where we can, we can have those really bad things, catastrophic things happen, they wouldn't have had to give up I think it's 10 or 12 years of their profits in compensation, in fines, in, in other costs associated, in lawsuits associated with that disaster. And so while uh, it's a commonly used and thrown around term, I think we have to be really careful when we talk about profit maximisation. We want to achieve sustainable returns and that involves necessarily balancing the interests of different stakeholders uh, over time. Definitely, yeah. And, and stakeholders, I think, is, is that very similar term to shareholders. But the shareholder is that private owner of the asset. And the stakeholders are the people that are affected, you know, more broadly by the company. So I think that's a really subtle difference, but, but huge in the impact. And that's what I wanted to get to was the impact itself on all of the stakeholders. And so if, if ESG can help protect shareholders from losses, from, you know, unforeseen issues, what sort of have you seen in the market of how ESG investing can have an impact you know, on the broader world in terms of environmental issues, climate change management, all those sorts of things. There's actually uh, an increasing number of ways which investors are trying to demonstrate the impact that they are having in the world. And it's still fairly nascent, but uh, we, we spoke before about impact investing before the interview, and that's had a huge influence on the broader industry. So even though it's still quite small in terms of its role in financial markets, generally this idea that you can have a measurable and uh, deliberate positive social or environmental cultural impact as well as making a decent return has really exploded in all across the industry and we're all applying our thinking now to well, how, how do we measure that? How do we um, determine whether something is intentional or not? Do we have to set up a particular fund or is it just the way that we engage with companies? And so everyone is thinking about how do we measure and demonstrate the impact that we're having. There are some instruments that have been created that allow you to do that really easily and it still requires some analysis, of course, but Green Bonds is a really good example and the Climate Bonds Initiative, which was started by an Australian, actually, so it's great. Uh, we've, had, we've had some great Aussie pioneers that have, that have changed the world around finance and sustainability. Sean Kidney, and he, they now measure climate-aligned bonds, um, they talk about. So it's not just the green 
labelled, but also companies that are in the right industries that are issuing bonds. And so you're starting to see green bond funds pop up and they're quite measurable, the impact they're having because they're investing in, in, in clean technology assets. Um, you're seeing an increasing number of impact investment funds become established and, and, and that part of the, the industry is growing very rapidly because people really want to be able to see that. They want to be able to touch the, the impact that they're having. But generally, a lot of it's been in private markets. So it's been around property or private equity, those those types of asset classes, whereas um, some of the bigger fund managers are looking at, can you do that in listed markets? And so have a listed impact fund and, and, they're, and they're, they're, we're still sort of seeing those evolve. Yeah, and, and impact measurement and impact reporting really core to sort of the issue with that. I've always been concerned with the issues as well as being good investors uh, in, in general, being able to deliver good outcomes for clients. Um, but the issue is really important to me and I, I, in the early years, thought that the consideration of ESG issues, the integration of those into mainstream processes, that that might get us to where we need to be. But increasingly, I think that became it became apparent that that was limited in that there are other issues, structural barriers within financial markets. So uh, the way people are remunerated, um, short-termism, uh, obsession with beating a benchmark as opposed to delivering absolute outcomes. And so all of these things kind of stood in the way of integrating ESG, actually delivering on broader societal objectives. And I was wondering a few years ago whether are we going to have to walk back from ESG integration to some degree and actually say, well, no, we, as a finance industry, we need to have a broader purpose, which is going to be positive for society, because we also have to earn a social licence to operate. And after the global financial crisis, um, and certainly we saw with the Royal Commission last year, we need to earn that social licence to operate. And the best way to do that is to, is to have a positive impact in people's lives and, and on the environment. What happened, interestingly, with the, with the Sustainable Development Goals is you saw a whole range of traditionally mainstream, finance-first focused investment uh, organisations that have said, well, actually, we want to align our portfolios, we want to align the way we, th- we invest with delivering on, on the Sustainable Development Goals. And it's still trying to achieve a good investment return, that's still part and parcel of their investment objectives. But having that positive impact and being able to align their portfolios with those with those goals, uh, societal goals, um, has become a really important feature as well. And I think that's a it's a powerful thing. And I'm 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 actually been quite surprised as someone who's been doing this for a little while at how much things have changed just in the last eighteen months uh, around those, those issues in particular. Around the SDGs, you think yeah, around the SDGs, around the Paris Agreement, um, in I Australia think- or globally, or. Both, yeah, yeah it's it's, okay. it's quite extraordinary. And so in Australia, we tipped over 50% of so the Responsible Investment Association benchmarks our industry every year. And last year we tipped over, it might've been two years ago now, tipped over 50% of professionally managed assets have a reasonable quality and standard of um, ESG integration. So they're thinking about the issues day to day and the investment decision-making. We've seen growth in, and this is you know, the brilliant thing about uh, all of the people out there, the citizen investors who are demanding more from their financial institutions and moving their super, moving um, their financial products to ones that are more sustainable, that the growth in those products has been quite extraordinary and that's caused more products to be developed. And so the, the whole market has shifted quite significantly. Um, we've seen the Financial Services Council put out a stewardship code. The Australian Council of Superannuation Investors has put out a stewardship code for asset owners for big super funds. We've seen the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative be established a a few weeks ago. So we're seeing real momentum across the financial services sector to actually change the way we do things and be able to have and then demonstrate the the positive role that we can play in society. It's not universal yet. I shouldn't make too much of it, but there is a, a genuine concerted effort by a lot of people. Well, that's it. And I mean, I, I certainly want my investments to be environmentally responsible, socially responsible, but I also want to make returns. Mm. You know, I also want to have some money in my retirement. I also want to buy a nice house. So, you know, how are the returns of ESG? Are really good. So it doesn't involve sacrifice, like effectively. So there's the been lots of, of different the myth types. Of trade-offs? The myth of trade-offs is finished? Uh, it's the myth that never dies, unfortunately. So um, we continue to work at it. So that's the other thing that the Responsible Investment Association does is benchmark the performance of... And this is sort of going back to that discussion about do you do it in, is it product or process? And so just looking at products that are sustainability themed, the Responsible Investment Association monitoring those products for years versus benchmarks versus mainstream products and finds that particularly over the long run that there's no sacrifice at all, but even over shorter periods that those products on average can perform better. Now, of course, there's going to be ones that are worse and there's going to be ones that are better as with any average. So just be careful around 
around that. Um, but also what we've seen is broader-based research, and there was a fantastic piece out of Hamburg University that looked at two and a half thousand university publications, pieces of research around the financial performance of ESG with companies and also for portfolios. And they found overwhelmingly that most of the research found a positive or non-negative or neutral relationship between returns and good environmental social governance practices. And they only found, I think it was some, somewhere around 10% that found a negative relationship. So it was a very, very small number over so many different pieces of research. And so the people that are looking at this and are researching this are finding that you can achieve both aims. Now, I think it's better to look at it over the long run and just generally as investing overall, not just in terms of sustainability factors. And so there may be times when certain sectors that uh, you might not want exposure to because of their environmental or social practices do really well. And so on a relative basis, you might not do as well, but uh, over the long run and consistently around the world, um, we've seen that that doesn't have to involve a sacrifice. Yeah, very good. I mean, and, and going back to that question I had about why do all investors not consider ESG mm. and, and the fact that, you know, oftentimes the returns are better, they're um, rapidly running out of excuses. So, Yeah, there are structural things, unfortunately. So the way the, a benchmark is set up, so your standard benchmark is set up based on the biggest company by market capitalization is the biggest holding. And then it just goes down the list and there's liquidity and a couple of things that they do to take some companies out. But that's how most benchmarks work. And because they're lower cost to put together, huge amounts of money have been going into index funds, which just mirror a benchmark. And so they don't even, they're not even pretending to take these issues into account because all they're, all they're going to try and deliver you is whatever the uh, market return weighted average market return is. So I think there is a real tension between those types of uh, strategies which have been developed around, okay, we'll, we'll just look to give you no more, no less than what the market returns and we'll do it at a very low cost. And then these broader interests and issues of society and what does it mean to be a shareholder and invest in good companies. And so you're seeing some very large investment companies, so BlackRock being the biggest in the world, they, they do a lot of uh, those benchmark index solutions, but they also are spending more and more time doing company engagement, voting their shares uh, in a way that's more aligned with, with with sustainability factors, but then you're still going to wind up having the, those exposures. And if that's not something you're comfortable with, it's worth seeing a financial advisor or going to the responsiblereturns.com.au tool, which the Responsible Investment Association provides to be able to look at what else is out there that might better fit your needs. Good stuff. Look, we've gone deep into the finance stuff and, and you know, I'm sure there are lots of people out there that are interested, but I want to calm it down a little bit and I'd love sure. to know how you found yourself at this this intersection of finance and sustainability have you always sort of had a green thumb and, and been interested or how did that all come about I've always been really concerned with the issues particularly so the Rio Earth Summit so that's what 20 something years ago maybe 25 years ago it was a really significant influence on, on the way that I thought about things I was really struck by uh, the way that things were going and that they seemed to be going in the wrong direction and over the course of a lot of my late teens, early 20s, I was actually really disillusioned with, with where we were going. It just didn't seem like things might change for the better. And I went about, I, was, I had various sort of careers and jobs, and then I came into finance probably about 16, 17 years ago. Was that sort of um, at university, or were you in, interested in finance when you were 16, 17? Or? No, no, not at all, actually. Um, and I had a career in hospitality for, yeah. it was my first um, career. And then I got into financial services and I wound up in risk management roles. And it just seemed to be something which I had a natural affinity for and sort of trying to think about risk and how you mitigate them and wh where the opportunities are and how do you develop strategy around um, being in, in a risk-aware way. And so I had a bit of a talent for that. And I hadn't reconciled, actually, how that related to these really big issues that are changing the world and in, in some ways the world's changing better we're living longer and hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in, in particularly in China um, but in other ways it's getting worse in terms of climate um, environmental degradation uh, some human rights aspects and so and I hadn't really connected the dots between the risk of those things and the issues themselves from a risk management my finance career perspective and then Inconvenient Truth came along and it, and it just kind of clicked the dot and there was a woman Elaine Pryor who worked at City she was um, the first uh, person in Australia to do um, a piece of ESG research around the carbon footprint of the ASX 200 
and what the impact of a carbon price might be on, on those companies. And so these, all of these sort of bits sort of started to come together and, and in my mind it just became obvious that it will, climate change, uh, and that was the first issue that I was really focused on, is a risk. It's a risk to our business, it's a risk to our investments, it's a risk to our clients. Why aren't we managing that risk? And I was at per- Perpetual at that time and so I did a lot of work in trying to get it on the agenda, get it on the risk register, and work it into our um, into our, into the way that investment decisions were being made within the organisation. And I think it, it took a little while. There was a couple of years of advocacy there in my in my risk role, and then we started looking at the principles for responsible investment and whether that was something that we ought to be members of. And I did a project around that, uh, and afterwards there, there was a need to implement. And so I was fortunate enough to get that that gig, and, and the rest is is history but it's amazing how and I think this is true of um, so many people in their professional lives that we kind of come in the door and we have a particular job and a role that we're there to do and there was a traditional culture that said oh you should leave your values and the other things that you care about at the door and you're there to do the work whereas I think that's less and less acceptable to people nowadays because these issues one they, they impact the businesses themselves they impact people's professional lives their personal lives they impact the key stakeholders the business has and so how do we bring that in to the professional settings that we find ourselves in and it doesn't matter whether you're a lawyer or a investment analyst or whether you're in product design and manufacturing and sales these issues have relevance for all of those people and it's really trying to find the ways in which we can bring them to life in, a, in our day-to-day. Well, and that fact that, that risk was what brought you in there and that this risk assessment, I think, is so core to this environmental issue rather than it being about saving the trees. It's the fact that, well, if we don't, your investments are going to go downhill. And I think, I don't know, what sort of strikes me that investors are a really pragmatic bunch. If there's a buck to be made, they'll go for it. And as you say, they leave their morals at the door to an extent. But at the same time, they, you know, they're very aware of risk. So I sort of wonder why haven't investors solved the climate crisis yet? Does that kind of mean that the market's not efficient? Oh, I'd argue that the, the market isn't efficient, but that's not because okay. of um, I- investors not solving the climate crisis. Uh, so there's a whole range of issues there. It's like a can of worms that we'd be opening <laughs> up. But I think that investors increasingly are playing the role that they need to play in terms of climate change. So just yesterday or the day before a statement was delivered to the G20 with over 400 investors in terms of trillions of dollars in assets under management, encouraging the G20 to really get serious about the Paris Agreement and going for 1.5 degrees. The investor group on climate change here in Australia has been active from a policy sense, but also in helping build understanding and help investors build the tools that we need in order to better engage with the issue and what the implications of the issue are but it, it is a really gnarly really complicated and difficult issue to encompass and so if with uh, with my day job with colonial first state global asset management we've been releasing a series of climate change papers and we broke the risks down into five areas and the first was the physical risks of climate change and what that means for a building that's uh, near the coast uh, or storm uh, sensitive crops and, and agriculture, it, 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 it permeates in, in many, many different ways. The second one was around the regulation of carbon and related pollutants. And so you have in China, air pollution. In, in India, air pollution is a very significant issue in its own right, particulate matter, mercury. And they happen to come from the same sources, uh, the fossil fuel sources that a big chunk or the biggest driver of our carbon emissions come from. And so the regulation of all of those um, types of pollutants is a risk that we need to be thinking about. Um, And and it happens in multiple ways. It's not just through carbon prices. It comes from changing vehicle emission standards. And we saw what happened to Volkswagen as a a result of not doing the right thing in relation to those standards. And again, it it can come in renewable energy targets, a range of different ways that things can be be regulated around um, carbon. The third one is the transition risk, which is probably, and that's the paper that we've just released uh, this week, last week. And that's the most complicated one because when we did the analysis and we looked at that, it wasn't just about fossil fuels uh, and those types of assets. It's actually, it did come up as auto manufacturers, capital goods companies. And there were things like how capital intensive is the business. And so if you're buying really expensive kit to make whatever it is that you make, um, and it has a really long life, if you mistime your investment decisions and buy a really high carbon version of that piece of kit when a lower carbon version of it is, is available, then you're exposed. In that respect, it comes to changing consumer preferences. So if you continue to manufacture 
high carbon appliances and, and people are really concerned about their energy prices and they want lower carbon appliances, then that will be a factor. And so those transitional issues as we move um, from our current state to a low carbon economy are going to have really big impacts on a whole range of companies, much bigger than what uh, we might think of uh, ordinarily. The last two areas which, we're, which we're, we'll be releasing over the next few weeks are around the legal risks to directors and to trustees and fiduciaries. And this is different from the carbon regulation. This is the directors of companies and directors of superannuation funds have a duty to act in the best interest of the companies or the members of the fund, whichever may be the case. And part of that duty is to show due care and diligence. And we've seen APRA, the RBA, ASIC, we've seen the Australian Accounting and Audit Standards Board, we've seen the science strengthen all around the world. And so it's very difficult for a director of a company to say that they weren't aware that climate change was an issue that was going to potentially impact the whole global economy. And they need to be able to demonstrate, therefore, that if they're going to show due care and diligence, that they've gone through a process of consideration and understanding how that might affect them, so the, the business and all the members, depending on whether it's a fund or a company, and then put in place measures to deal with those risks and opportunities um, that, that are appropriate. Um, and we are seeing lawsuits in the US, of course, because you know, lawsuits always seem to start in the US. Um, but we've even seen a superannuation fund in Australia have a lawsuit filed against it around um, climate change considerations not being properly disclosed. And so there's risks there for those directors and, and uh, of those. And then the last one is the reputational and social licence to operate hmm. risks. And so we, and we see that come through the advocacy from groups, say, like uh, Market Forces is a good example. So they've put a lot of pressure on financial institutions and financial institutions are either responding to that or not, but that can have a really big impact on their, their reputation in the market and cause consumers to go elsewhere for their products. And so all of those things together pose a whole range of challenges to how investors have traditionally thought about things and the assumptions that we make about how companies are able to continue to grow and prosper in what is going to be a really different environment in, in the decades ahead. Yeah, I mean, if there is that stranded asset risk of, you know, a company investing in, in um, really carbon-intensive machinery in this sort of idea, you know, the economic model would say, well, you know, the company that had some foresight and, you know, invested in a more efficient plant that was perhaps more expensive than in the long term, they'll do better and the other one will you know, lose in, in the market. But I mean, we're sort of not really seeing that. You know, if you look at coal-fired power and, and certain things, this might be too simplistic. But on the one hand, I see humans want convenience and a lot of us are lazy. We like driving, we like flying. So there's that element. And then on the other side, you've also got the owners of the, the oil and the coal reserves who are working very hard to make sure that market remains. To me, they're the biggest reasons why we're, we're sort of slow in making this change. You know, I have faith in the economics but I think that, you know, there, there are some factors that are pulling it back. How do you see that? There are definitely barriers to change. And one of the actual interesting points of investor engagement in recent times, and we saw shareholder resolutions placed by ACCR as an active shareholder group um, on Rio Tinto's and BHP's uh, annual general meetings around the lobbying done by some of the, the industry groups that they were involved with and how they were inconsistent the lobbying being done by those groups to what the company's actual statements around climate change and uh, wanting a carbon price, for example, and the transitions that they're making in their own portfolios of, of assets that they own, that's definitely an issue. And it's an issue which an increasing number of investors are focusing on as a real hindrance to being able to, to change the way the economy works. I think in Australia, sometimes we kind of get swept up in a media debate that isn't actually reflective of what's happening on the ground in terms of the solutions. And so one example, so Excel Energy in the US, they've tended for to replace two uh, fossil fuel plants uh, last year or the year before. The median price that came in for renewables, mostly solar plus some storage, was cheaper than keeping those existing plants running, let alone building a new coal-fired power station. And when you start to see that the cost of renewables and storage is cheaper than keeping existing coal or gas assets going, then everything changes because what, why would you keep it going? Now, that's not everywhere in the world, but you're starting to see that critical threshold breached in lots and lots of places. And in terms of building new assets, it's clearly more financially and from a risk basis as well, more sensible to, to go for a low, low carbon solution because these are, again, assets that are going to last for 30 years. And so by, by not 
going for that lower carbon option, you, you, you're potentially um, at risk of losing a lot of money. If we look purely at that economic um, valuing question, then, you know, sure, renewables and solar and all of these sorts of things are, are cheaper, but th- we're still building coal-fired power stations. We're still digging it out of the ground. You know, is that sort of political interference? Is that something outside the economic the market that's keeping that alive? We are still digging it out of the ground, and there is um, incumbency there, I guess, with, with a lot of these assets. But just uh, last year, the amount of final investment decisions, so the FIDs, which determine whether things get built or not, for new coal-fired power stations was lower than the number closing for the first time ever, so presumably since they were they were invented. And so we are hitting a number of those inflection points. You're also seeing the rollout uh, in countries like India, in China, where they're building much more in terms of renewables um, and, and even nuclear than they are of, of coal. And, and so there's real challenges there for a country like Australia as a big coal exporter in terms of what are the opportunities of the future for us, and, and clearly with a massive solar and wind resource base as well. We're very fortunate that we've we've got the best of both those worlds and, and the ability for a country like Australia to transition um, and become a renewable energy exporter and a renewable energy superpower, as, as, as is sometimes said, is absolutely there. But we need to really um, back that in if we're going to make the most of it. Well, look, really glad to hear that there's optimism, you know, coming through that there's so many opportunities and I, and I really do, you know, you can see it um, happening in Australia, but um, at the same time, look, there's good news stories and there are bad. There are, yeah. You're really knowledgeable about this stuff. I guess that's from, you know, work and from your, your personal perspective. And you've got a new project. It's called Altiorum. I'll let you explain what it is, but it seems to be a kind of a, an archive of all of this stuff you've talked about today and more and trying to make it accessible. So can you tell us a bit about Altiorum? Great. I love talking about Altiorum. So, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, John. Uh, so Altiorum started officially as a company in February, but I went part-time from my, my role with Colonial First State Global Asset Management. It's a separate thing. It's, a, it's my own venture, or there's a group of us now. And it was based on this idea that while it's nice for people with titles like mine, responsible investment and ESG analyst and things like that, to be working on these issues, we actually need everybody working on these issues. It's not, it's not enough for just a few of us to be doing that and trying to influence change. And the other belief that was sitting there was actually lots of people care about the issues that, that we care about. Um, and the people that are listening to this podcast care about, but they don't necessarily have the tools and the resources they need to go in and advocate for change within their organisations to their super funds to change the way that finance, the financial system works. And, And so what we set about to do is how do we actually start to bring those resources together and make them accessible and searchable in a way that will give and empower those people to to go and be more effective advocates and to be more efficient advocates as well because it'll hopefully cut down the amount of time that we all spend Googling, looking for stuff in the course of our work. So what sort of materials are we talking? White papers, articles, graphs, like all of the above or...? Yeah, exactly. So we're looking at generally freely available research and there's so much of it out there. So we have um, everything from your traditional organisations like your World Banks and your NASAs who are doing really interesting uh, research on climate change. You've got NGO groups like uh, Oxfam, say, or uh, Carbon Tracker in the UK working on climate as well. You've got the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, um, which is a fantastic resource as well, where you can even search for companies and it'll show you whether there's been allegations of human rights abuses against those companies. There's literally a huge wealth of information out there, but there's two issues with the way that it's currently distributed to people. One is organisations that do this type of research don't um, necessarily promote other organisations that are doing complementary research they promote their own and so if someone's trying to come in and really build a case for change you want to be able to connect the dots and you and your case is strengthened by being able to refer to multiple sources um, the other thing that happens and this is the nature of the internet age I guess where people and organizations are generally promoting their most recent research not necessarily their best or the fundamental pieces of research that might have happened five years ago even that give you that base understanding that you need in order to make the changes and prosecute for the changes that you that you believe need to be made from a sustainability perspective. And so what Altiorum's trying to do is to categorise things across multiple things. We built our own taxonomy, but we've also categorising things according to the Global Reporting Initiative, which is a, a corporate sustainability uh, reporting standard. 
there's the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is, or SASB for short, which is a, an American standard around what are the material issues for certain sectors. And so for banks is obviously quite different to a mining company in terms of what the issues they um, are going to be most important to them. And things like uh, the Climate Bonds Initiative, which I mentioned, and, the, and Sustainable Development Goals. We're also categorising things based on whether does a piece of uh, research or an organisation who we're also profiling help you build a business case, an investment case, an economic case or an ethical case for change or does it help you implement? And there's some really important nuanced differences around those. So a business case might include things like does it go to uh, consumer demand? So the, the Responsible Investment Association benchmarking that I mentioned before that shows that flows into these funds is growing exponentially. And so that's a really good proof point when you're going to your board of directors to say, we should be developing these types of products. We should be doing more in this area. It could be about what competitors are doing or it could be around the employee engagement benefits of having a, a, um, a good approach to sustainability. The investment cases, those traditional things that we've talked about, like risk and return, diversification. Um, so does this research help you make the case for why not considering ESG issues is, is a risky proposition? Economics is we're seeing these mega trends sweep through the globe, whether they're linked to technology or climate. We've seen various organisations catalogue what these mega trends are and how they're affecting economies globally and so they're the types of cases that we can make about why we need to shift in order to adjust to those changes and then the ethical case goes to those types of issues around stewardship around intergenerational equity around how do we um, ensure and preserve our reputation as a, and our social license to operate as an industry so we can continue to go forward and, and, and what does business ethics mean for the finance sector and there's research out there that supports all of those arguments for for change and some of them are more effective in some circumstances versus others and what we want to try to be able to do is regardless of what you're trying to achieve by coming to Altiorum you'll be able to to find the information that you need to build the best case that you can. It sounds like a database, it sounds like a library, and it sounds like a search engine. Is it yes. kind of all of those? It's a bit of that, a bit of each of those. Um, the other thing that we're trying to do is because not everyone has spent the last 10 or 12 years working on these, where do you start? So we, we're actually um, looking to get expert curators of the content as well. So we'll build this base of content and we'll have experts that will come in and say, okay, so if you really want to understand climate change and why it's important to your superannuation, read these five documents in this order. And so we're creating these types of playlists that are put together by experts. Importantly, we're also trying to build what is a, a, a essentially a, um, a self-sustaining system. And so the people who are going to summarise the research, pull out the key charts and the key quotes and do all that categorisation that I, that I mentioned are volunteer university students. So we work, we've been working with uh, University of Technology Sydney and we've had about 74 students put up their hand and say they want to get involved in this. We want to expand that to other universities. So we've had conversations with a number in Australia and, and a couple offshore as well. And so we have a, a huge group of people, a cohort of people there who want to see change, who want to learn about a different part of finance that they're not always taught about in, in university, which is those sustainability aspects and how they relate to finance. But we also want to give them a benefit, a tangible benefit, is that we'll profile them on Altiorum to show them these are the research pieces that you've done and then they can use that on their on their resumes, in their LinkedIn profiles, things like that to try and actually show that they've got this practical experience in thinking about these issues. And they'll also get exposure to these expert reviewers and expert curators because as they go through and complete the template, um, they'll be able to draw on their knowledge and assistance from them in ensuring that we get good quality content going up on the site. On the other side of that system, we've got the users of the content and we're, we're asking the users to rate the content so people can start to sort based on what people have found most useful, but also to suggest new pieces of content because we're not going to be able to capture everything that's out there. So as people come and use the site and they're looking for things which help them with the business case for having good human rights processes or supply chain processes around human rights, they may say, oh, you haven't got the corporate and human rights benchmark report in here, that's really important, and they'll be able to click a button and it'll, it'll drop into the workflow for a student to pick up and, and start to continuously improve and build on the library. So that's the, the hope for the site, is that we get to a place where, where we can have those two halves working together. Yeah, it really sounds like it's technology that's, that's making it possible, um, and all of this networking. So it's, you know, it's Spotify, you're making playlists. Yes, we did steal that from Spotify. Well, I'm sorry, but, Spotify. But, but I think yeah. every element, you know, Reddit in terms of upvoting things, and, you know, it's crowdsourcing ideas. And I think 
a library, you know, it's up to you. You walk in, it's catalogued and, and you find what you want. But I think, you know, you need that subjective element of, well, if you're looking for this topic, like start reading that. I guess you can judge, you know, whoever it is making that recommendation. You can look at, you know, what their background is. So whether you're not, you're going to listen to them or not. Sure. That sounds really great. I mean, huge potential. That's probably going to be my number one source of research, I think, for all of the kind of stuff that I do in this field. We'd love that. Can we take that clip and we'll put that on the uh, yeah, yeah. on the site? So we hope to launch, do a soft launch late in the year. So we should have a decent prototype in September, October, soft launch at the end of the year. And then we'll, we'll need to go and raise some more. It's a, it's a charity, so we'll need to go raise some more donations and funding to then build it out to the next the next phase so so look out for it um, on linkedin you can search for altiorum and you can find it there it'll be great for for your listeners if, if they're interested in, in in this resource center to to follow us there yeah good stuff well and i'm sure there'll be you know an endless amount of reading to do there but what i like to ask my guests at the end of my chat is for a book recommendation so beyond that stuff is there any any uh, good reads you can recommend uh, so in terms of nonfiction and relevant to this topic, I think one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years is Kate Raworth's Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. She's a brilliant woman uh, who works out of Oxford University, used to be at Oxfam, and she came up with this concept of donut economics. I'm not sure if you've had any... Yeah, a lot of recommendations for yeah, that one. So, yeah. Oh, really? Damn yeah. it. Um, no, no, but the the other book, well, yeah, because they're sort of interrelated, aren't they? But yeah. And I, I quite like, in my last holiday, I read Tim Winton's uh, Shepherd's Hut, the, his most recent one, and I've always thought as a he's um, my favourite Australian author, very lyrical and poetic in the way that he writes, and so it's a, it's a good read as well. Yeah, I read that one myself over summer, actually. It's really sparse. I mean, it's like Australia, I guess. It's really spread out. It's, it's slow, and it's red earth, and it's hot, but... At the same time, it's only two characters, right? I mean, there are other sort of tangential yes. characters, but really it's the old guy and the young guy. And it's interesting, but it's it's still captivating. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good old Aussie classic. He builds tension well. Um, and then from just quick, if I may, a movie, 2040, sure. we watched a few weeks back and I thought that was excellent because I, I also oscillate between kind of pessimism and optimism depending on the day of the week and the hour of the day uh, given the, the nature of the issues that we face. And I thought... 2040 just did a, a magnificent job of showing what's possible in the type of world that we can create if we all work together for it. That's it. Yeah, we had Damon Gamow on uh, a few weeks ago. He oh, was actually great. here sitting in that seat. So it was, uh, it was great to get him in here. And, and you're right, like the optimism of that film, I think is quite amazing. You know, um, Al Gore, obviously, The Inconvenient Truth made a huge impact and that was really important. But then it almost seems like people have sort of got bored of that and it's, you know, lost touch with it and it doesn't quite have the power but I think the optimism and, and you know you mentioned it in one of your first statements of all of the technologies here it's already available we just need to go with it we need the political power there are business opportunities here so we just need to uh to go forward and yeah everyone should check out 2040 for sure I think I read today that it's um one of Australia's highest grossing documentaries now so oh terrific so there's clearly appetite people want people want to hear that message and um and it's all possible. It's in our hands. Yeah. Well, look, there was one other thing I wanted to mention. You know, we've talked about so many things. I've had the pleasure of asking you lots of questions that, that I've got. But I'd love to help other people, you know, give other people an opportunity to ask you questions. And so maybe in the day or two after this goes live, uh, we could jump on Twitter. And if there's anybody out yeah, there absolutely. who um, yeah, wants to ask some questions, we can jump in there. So I'm not sure if you know how much how much appetite there will be, but, but I hope people jump in there and they're polite and get a bit of a conversation going. Great. No, happy to do that. And, um, and also, by all means, people are welcome to, to find me on, on, on LinkedIn or on Twitter. I'm Pabs Baruti, I think. So uh, feel free to ping me. Always keen to keep the conversation going. Yeah, Pabs Baruti. I found that one. That's a great name. Everyone should check it out. All right. Well, look, great to have you in here at uh, Hub Australia. Lots of discussion about all of the important financial issues, economics, and, and how an optimistic view of, of how finance is helping make a, a better future, a good future. Brilliant. Thanks very much, John. Cheers, Appreciate Pablo. you bringing me in. Thanks so much. No worries.